Take your Bibles this morning. We're going to turn open to the Gospel of Matthew, continuing our way through that Gospel. And this morning we're in Matthew chapter 16, the very beginning of it. If you turn to Matthew chapter 16, would encourage you to have Bibles open on your laps at home, to read the Word together. And this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 12 of Matthew 16. And let's pray though first before we read God's word and we hear it preached this morning. Father, we thank you for this word. Truly in the midst of a dark world, we are in need of the light of your word. We pray this morning that you would take this eternal word as it were, you would cast the seed of it, that that seed would find our hearts and our minds a ready soil for it. I pray especially for kids this morning and parents, that they would be able to hear the word read and preached and be able to focus this morning, that we would not be distracted from the glorious truths that you would communicate to us. You calm us in your presence and teach us your ways and your truths. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. This is the holy and errant word of God. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them. And departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Grace and I, last night before dinner, were watching a little documentary about an astronaut. He was telling us about rockets and how rockets work, and 
As you would expect, an astronaut that is speaking about rockets, he eventually got to Apollo 11. You can't talk about rockets without talking about Apollo 11. Apollo 11, that rocket that was launched to the moon, and it was that first landing upon the moon when Neil Armstrong emerged from the capsule and he said those famous words, this is one small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. Really monumental moment in the history of humanity. But you know, there are some that think it's a hoax. And Neil Armstrong didn't step from any module that day. He didn't step on the moon, but rather he was on the set of a Hollywood studio. And it wasn't so much a, a great step for mankind as much as it was a step of propaganda for America in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And they think those of us who believe, and I do believe, that Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, they would say, well, you're believing a lie. It's a lie that's been manufactured. Well, let's just say that it possibly is a lie. It's not a lie that, if it is a lie that affects my life every day, it's not something I think about every day. I frankly can't think of a day where it really has affected my decisions in the day. But there are some lies that affect things incredibly and affect all kinds of aspects of our lives. And the most dangerous lies are the lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Those are the dangerous ones because they bind and they restrict and they shape and they, they form. But truth, where truth is believed, it frees. Truth can, can it be like fresh air. It can be like fresh air when you're underneath the water and you've been under submerged underwater for a period of time, and then all of a sudden you leap out of that water and you take that grasp of gasp of new fresh air. It, truth can be like that. It refreshes, it's freeing, it's life-giving. This morning, I want us to see from this text three things. First, the great lie. Second, the great truth. And third, the great assurance. So first, the great lie. I wonder, as you sit there in your homes this morning, maybe it's your home, maybe it's a friend's home, maybe it's a, a family member's home, but as you sit there on this Resurrection Sunday... I wonder what you believe is the greatest barrier to people believing in the truth that we're celebrating today, the gospel. What's the greatest barrier to people coming to saving faith in Christ and believing that Christ is who He claimed to be, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord of all things? There are no doubt some of you sitting there watching this morning who are sitting there begrudgingly. You're sitting there because 
a family member has dragged you there. You're doing this for mom or for dad or for your son or your daughter or your brother or your sister. You don't believe this. You believe the gospel is a hoax. You don't believe Jesus is who he claimed to be. You believe it's a lie. You may not say that. You'd say, ah, you're probably very gracious. You think, well, those, those people believe that. My family members believe that. And that gives them some kind of comfort. And if it's good for them, then good. But I don't believe it. And you're sitting there. Begrudgingly, you've been dragged there. I've been there. I used to go to church each Sunday just to please my mom and my grandma. They dragged me there. And I would sit there and I would listen to the preacher and I would listen to the songs and I would listen to the prayers. And I didn't believe any of it. And if you had asked me all those years ago, what is the greatest barrier to believing Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Savior, that He is the Lord, I would have answered, and I did answer that question, much like probably some of you would answer it this morning. I would say, when people would ask me, I would say, well, there just isn't enough evidence. There just isn't enough evidence. I want to see a moon rock before I believe. Well, here we have in this passage some individuals that are doubting Jesus' claims. And they come to him because they believe he's a fraud. They believe he's a liar. They want proof. Matthew tells us that these Pharisees and these Sadducees, that they came to Jesus. And when Matthew tells us that, he uses one article to introduce both of them. An article is like the word the. He says, the Pharisees and Sadducees. He, he unites them together. These two groups which would have almost never have been united together. The Pharisees would come from kind of the middle class. They were the religious elites of the day. They were fastidious in religious observance. They so wanted to honor the law of God, that they made law upon law upon law so that they could uphold the law of God. And they would add to it and add to it and add to it. They were, they were legalists to the core. The Sadducees were on the other end of the spectrum. They were from the elite class, the, the wealthy. They were aristocrats. And they were more than anything else politicians. They were not so concerned about religious things as the Pharisees. They actually didn't believe many of the things that the Scriptures taught. They didn't believe in anything that was miraculous. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe that there ever would be a, a resurrection. But here you have these two Groups of people who would never come together, who would not have given each other Christmas cards. They didn't have to bother with that because they didn't believe in Christmas. But they would have never united around anything. 
And yet here they are united. One article governs both of them in this text to show how united they are. And why are they united? Because they have a common enemy. Jesus. I believe he's a fraud. And so Matthew tells us that they come to him not to learn from him, not to place their faith in him, not to seek him, but to test him. They want to test him. When I was a freshman in high school, I had a, an English teacher within the first few weeks of school. I remember us coming into the class and sitting down in the classroom and she said, I'm going to pass out a test, and you are to keep it face down on the desk until I give instructions, and we were all a little shell-shocked, and she passed out the test, and we passed it down the rows, and there it sat on our desk, face down, and we had each handled it, and then she said to us, she said, you are going to, when I say begin, you're going to flip over this exam. You're going to have 10 minutes to take this exam. And you will either pass it or you will fail it. Now, we had all handled this exam. We knew the weight of it. It was at least three pages long, if not longer. And so we did what any self-respecting student would do. We all began to complain. And she immediately shut us down. And she said, you are going to take this exam. It's going to take 10 minutes. When I say begin, you flip it over, you read the directions, you take the exam, and then we'll grade it. And so she said, begin. And we all flipped over our exams in haste. Uh, I was like one of those cartoon characters writing as fast as I could. I was burning up the page. And then all of a sudden, she said, 10 minutes is over. And I wasn't done. I had barely gotten through the first half of the first page. But neither was anybody else done. And we all began to complain, this isn't fair. And she said, what were the instructions I gave you? She said, did you read the instructions on the beginning of the page? And none of us have. We quickly went to the beginning of the page and read the instructions. And there it said, you are to skip all of the questions and go to the last question and just answer that and then put your pen down. It was cute. It was tricky. It wasn't an exam we were meant to pass. At the very least, it was meant to teach us a lesson. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are not coming to Jesus to be instructed. They're coming to instruct. They're not giving him a test that they want him to pass. They're giving him a test that they want him to fail. And they want him to fail it before all of the crowd that is gathered around him so that the crowd might see that he is a fraud. That he's not who he claims to be. And so here's the test. Give us a sign from heaven. It's a bold request. 
We won't believe what you say. We won't believe who you claim to be, Jesus, unless you give us a sign from heaven. Give us something miraculous. Something so miraculous that only the God of heaven could do. Something so extraordinary that it must come from the sky. But here's the reality. He already had. And they just couldn't recognize the signs. They can't recognize the signs that they have been given because they won't recognize the signs they've been given. Here's the great lie that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are telling themselves and that we often tell ourselves, if only evidence is presented, then I will believe. And that's a lie. Jesus points out that they can't seem to discern the signs that they've already been given. He says, but you, you observe the signs of the weather, and you are great weathermen. You know that if the evening has a red sky, then they would tell you that the next day would be a fair day. And if the morning had a red sky, then you would tell people that it's going to be a stormy day. You could read the signs of the weather, but you can't read the signs of the times. They're experts. Experts on weather, but they're failures at interpreting spiritual signs. And yet, they've been given sign after sign. What signs? Well, the signs that Jesus has already done. The Pharisees, they knew the Scriptures. The Sadducees even knew the Scriptures. They knew the prophecies. They knew what was said about this Christ, this Messiah that would come into the world. What would be signs of the kingdom having come? But they're blind to the fact. A Messiah is here, but they're blind to him. You remember earlier in the gospel when John's disciples were sent by John to Jesus and they inquire of Jesus and they say, Are you the one that was to come or are we to expect another? Jesus' response is clear to them. He points them to what he's done. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended at me. Look at what I'm doing, Jesus is saying. And hear what I'm preaching. It's what the prophecies foretold. This is what you were told would happen, and it's happening. It's a great lie. If only enough evidence is presented, then I will believe. It's a lie. The truth is, no matter how many signs Jesus gave the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they would not believe. Why? Because the problem wasn't a lack of evidence, it was a lack of faith. 
They're blind to spiritual things. They don't want to believe. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone that doesn't believe we landed on the moon? Or maybe it's something else that they don't want to believe. It doesn't matter what you tell them. What evidence you give them, they're not going to believe. You can take someone and you can show them all the mathematical formulas of how it is that a rocket could be launched off of the earth and it could get above, it could surpass gravity and it could rise up into the orbit and then from the orbit that it could make its way to the moon and then that it could be there and it could descend upon the moon and then launch off of the moon and come back to earth. You can give all the mathematical formulas. You can give all the science. But if they don't want to believe, they're not going to believe. You may want to hit them upside the head with a moon rock. But it still wouldn't matter. They won't believe if they don't want to believe. Here's what I know. You and I will always believe. Christ's claim to be Savior and Messiah and Lord are lies. That it's a hoax. Until God in His sovereign, merciful grace opens the eyes of our hearts so that we can see. When we believe It isn't because the evidence changes. What changes then? How do we go from believing this great hoax, as maybe we would call it, to to believing that this is something that controls all of our lives and shapes everything about us? It isn't the evidence that's changed. It's our hearts. God opens the eyes of our hearts to believe. It's not a mistake that immediately after this passage comes the passage of of Peter there at Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asks the disciples there, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter boldly proclaims to Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Jesus' response to Peter is not, that a boy, Peter. You did it. Well done. That's not what he says. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, the Father has changed his heart. The Spirit has worked upon him. And now he looks at Christ with the eyes of faith and he believes. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they knew the prophecies and it wasn't enough. They had heard Jesus in the flesh preach and it wasn't enough. 
They had seen Jesus in the flesh do miracles, and it wasn't enough. They didn't believe because of their hearts. But it isn't as if we haven't been given evidence. Oh, no. When we believe, we believe upon truth. It is a true thing. It's not a leap into darkness, but into light. We believe truth. And here we see in this text that God gives the great truth. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are looking for signs, they're looking for evidence, and the greatest of signs is provided, Jesus says. And what is that, he says? Well, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. It's the greatest of signs. Now, Jesus doesn't here in the text tell us what that sign of Jonah is, but anybody who has ever heard of Jonah knows the story of Jonah. And if I was to ask any of you, tell me the story of Jonah, we would all go to the exact same point in the story. Jonah was swallowed by a fish or a whale. But that's not what makes it miraculous. What makes it such a great story that we all know is that Jonah emerged out of the fish or the whale. And Jesus makes that clear in, earlier in the gospel. In chapter 12, in verse 39, he stated, when the Pharisees and scribes came to him there looking for a sign, he says, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What Jonah experienced was but a foreshadowing of what Christ would experience. As Jonah was in the belly of that whale for three days and then emerged, so Jesus prophesies that he will be three days in the belly of the earth. And then he will emerge. He prophesies his own resurrection. And he prophesies the exact timing of it. Here's the greatest of all signs. The greatest of all truths that Christ is the Savior of the world. He prophesies his triumph over death and then he does it. Death. Now listen, in this current context, I don't need to tell you how astounding that is. Death. Death is the great enemy. One from whom no one escapes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is such an enemy that we will shut down the world as we know it to try and spare too many from suffering it at one time. We will lock ourselves down. We will lead ourselves into economic struggle. We will not visit loved ones and family members. We will all attempt to do homeschool at home. 
We won't even meet together as a church to worship. To keep death at bay. Think of all that has been disrupted over these past four weeks in our society because of the threat of death. We know that it's an enemy. It's an enemy that if it wins, you don't overcome the loss. It's sealed, it's finished, it's done. Now there are some that get a little respite. They go to battle with death and it appears that they lose, they die, and then some medical hero resuscitates them and brings them back to life. But in that moment, death hasn't lost the war. It's just lost the battle. Because that person will die again. And when they die, it's finished. It's sealed. It's complete. It's over. Death always wins eventually. As D.A. Carson once wrote, death itself is nothing other than God's insistence. That human hubris will go so far and no farther. It is a judicial response to our warped rebellion. And we are all sinners, so we all die. That's the judgment. There's no one that can avoid the power of death. We can put it off, we can distance ourselves from it, but eventually it comes for all of us. And when it does, there is no recovery. You're dead. It wins. It has victory. But if someone could eventually overcome death, now that would be a miraculous sign like no other. That would be a sign beyond all Signs. Whoever could triumph over death. That person would be Lord surely over all things. They've triumphed over death which no one can triumph over. It makes miracles of multiplying bread and turning water into wine and even giving eyesight to the blind seem like children's play. On Good Friday, a crowd yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pontius Pilate condemned him. And the beam was fixed to his shoulders. And he was driven onto the street by Roman soldiers. That he might carry that beam up to that Mount Calvary outside the city. He bore that beam bruised, beaten. He had stripes on his back, a crown of thorns on his head. And his body was weary 
because he was truly man. And so he drops to his knees on that road that led outside the city because he could no longer bear the weight. And so they enlist a man from the crowd to carry that beam. And they trudge down the road and they trudge outside the city where trash is dumped and where criminals are executed. And he has led up that Mount Calvary. And that beam that was carried now for him is laid again on his shoulders and it is fixed to another beam. And then it is raised into the air. And he hangs there. And darkness descends upon the earth. Because all of the earth is groaning. Its maker is lying there crucified. And he cries out with that loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we're told he gave one last cry. And he gave up his spirit. He died. He truly died. And it appears as though death has victory once again. He's taken down from that cross and he is wrapped in a linen shroud. And then he's carried to a tomb, a new tomb. And he's laid within that tomb. And a big boulder is rolled over the face of that tomb to seal him in. He's truly buried. And it appears that death has victory again. The next day, the Pharisees are concerned because Jesus has prophesied that he would rise from the grave after three days. And so, out of fear that people might actually believe that, they ask for soldiers to be put around the tomb to guard it. And so, there are guards put around the tomb. And it appears that death has won. Again, it has victory. But it didn't. He had prophesied that after three days I will rise again. The sign of Jonah will be given who had been in the belly of the whale for three days and on the third day had emerged. He rose from the dead. He had the victory. Death was defeated. It had no claim on him. No right to him. 
And as he had prophesied, so it was done. He comes forth from that tomb victorious. I will only believe if, if what? He rose from the dead. What greater sign could be given? What greater testimony could you receive? What greater proof could there be? He rose from the dead. There can't be a greater sign of this great truth. Will you believe? It's the only way to have triumph over death. If the greatest of the signs of the great truth that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Finally, dear Christian, know that you have the greatest of all assurances. The disciples, they get into this boat to cross over again to the other, sea, uh, the other side of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, and they remember that they've forgotten to take bread together. <laughs> and they're afraid that they're going to be hungry because they didn't take any bread with them. They sound like my son, always hungry. Their mind's always on food. Jesus knows this as the conversation they're having, and he uses it as a teaching opportunity. He warns the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He warns them of the teaching of these men that it's dangerous and it can work its way through the community and it can bring devastation upon the people of God. But the disciples, they're confused. They're a little dense. They don't understand. They think Jesus is somehow talking about bread that fat Pharisees and Sadducees had made and that they were eating that bread, and they're saying, but we didn't bring any bread, Jesus. But it's interesting. Jesus doesn't chide them for their lack of understanding. Rather, he's concerned with their faith. And especially that, that trusting component of faith. Faith is knowledge and assent and trust. He's concerned with their trusting him as Savior. Oh, you of little faith, he says. How can they be concerned with whether they will have enough food to eat, whether there will be bread for them? They've just had sign after sign. They just saw Jesus feed the 5,000, multiply the loaves of bread so that there was plenty to eat. And if that wasn't enough, then they saw the sign of him feeding the 4,000 so that there was enough to eat. It was so clear. And Jesus forces them to look back in remembrance. He says in verse 8, Do you not remember? And it's applied, implied again in verse 10. Do you not remember? He doesn't tell them the answer. He just causes them to look back and to remember. Remember, dear disciples, he's saying. Remember how I multiplied the loaves of bread. 
Remember how I so multiplied them that everyone ate to the point that they were satisfied. And remember that there were even basketfuls left over. You can trust me. Remember. Ah, dear Christian. You've received the greatest of all signs. We but need to remember. Been given the greatest of all signs. Christ died for you and he came back from the dead for you. If he simply died at the cross, if it hadn't been raised, We should, as Paul suggests in 1 Corinthians 15, we should just eat and drink and be merry. We should be like the disciples and just be thinking upon food and drink and wasting our days away. No resurrection, no Christianity. But he was raised. He was raised. So what have we to fear? If God is for us, what can be against us? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus died for us. He was raised and he sits at the right hand of God. And he is even now interceding for us. We've been adopted into the very family of God. We've been made sons and daughters of the living God. You were a sinner. You had a debt that had to be paid. You were under the condemnation of the law. Death and hell had a right to you. You were children of Satan. But you are no longer. That old you was buried in that tomb. And it remains there never to be called forth again. And the new you was raised with Christ. You're His. He holds you in the palm of His hand. And none can snatch you out of his hand. You're his. So you can have that peace which surpasses all understanding. You can take a breath. And you can rest. We belong to the one who has triumphed over the grave. He's our song. He's our Savior. He's our salvation. You can rest in Him today. Let's pray. Lord and our God, we exalt You on this Resurrection Sunday. As our great God, God of wonders, 
and none greater than the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Oh, we pray even now for those that have streamed the service that do not know the joy and the everlasting peace and the life and the light that is in Christ. That you would shed your monumental grace upon them and that you would give them the eyes of faith to see this afternoon. For those of us that are in Christ, Oh, would you call to remembrance over and over within us. Lead us back time and time again to the cross and to the empty tomb. That we might rejoice in Christ our Lord. That we might know peace and enjoy it in all of its radiant beauty we might delight and serve you, our God, who is worthy of all of our praise. It's in the strong name of Christ, our risen Savior, we pray. Amen.